Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. I met Michael Rona face-to-face for the first time in April 1990 as we prepared to board a flight from Sydney to Los Angeles on an exciting mission. He was just 24 and had been calling thoroughbred and greyhound racing in Queensland as part of the 4BC team. Michael and I had been invited to share race calling duties over six meetings at the famous Hollywood Park track. For me, it was a short working holiday. For Michael, it was an audition. The Hollywood Park Operating Company was looking for a track announcer, and should the Australian style of calling receive a favourable response from on-course crowds and a widely spread simulcast audience, the young Queenslander had the job. 31 years on, and 55-year-old Michael Rona is firmly entrenched as one of America's favourite callers. He's currently the voice of thoroughbred and quarter horse racing at the picturesque Los Alamitos track in Orange County, California. From a humble beginning at Kilcoy in 1983, Michael has established an amazing CV. This man has called horse racing at many, many tracks in six countries. He's covered some great performances by champion horses in iconic races. I should add that his career has taken a few twists and turns along the way, but talent and resolve have always carried him through. As we welcome Michael Rona to the website, it's just after five o'clock on Saturday afternoon in sunny California, and he is safely ensconced in the broadcast box at Los Alamitos, where he's getting ready to call a program of night quarter horse racing. 31 years after our first meeting at Sydney Airport, it's a delight to welcome you to the podcast. Michael, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure and privilege, John. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. And uh, let me reciprocate a couple of compliments, because when I was an aspiring race caller in my early to mid-teens, you inspired me in the same way I've heard you speak of Ken Howard inspiring you. Uh, Honestly, no one fired my imagination and ignited my passion for the sport and specifically for race broadcasting like you did. And to think that 
you became the catalyst for the career and life-changing opportunity to come to America still boggles my mind all these years later. I, I idolized you, and it's been an enormous privilege to befriend you and your family. So thank you so much, John, for everything you continue to do for horse racing with your webcast and your website. And uh, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast today. Wonderful to have you on board, Mike. Now, just listening to you then, I'm finding it hard to get my head around the fact that after 31 years in the United States, your accent is unchanged. And that has probably worked to your advantage uh, when you think about it, because it's given you a very distinctive identity throughout uh, USA racing. Yeah, well, I take it as a compliment for sure um, that, that the accent is still intact. Some people are very susceptible to losing accents even after a very brief time abroad. Um, I, I would probably have to credit a very good mate of mine here in America, Peter Berry, mm. with whom I'm in regular touch. We we send each other voicemail messages on a daily basis and we keep each other honest and uh, uh, we're not uh, afraid to call each other out if there's uh, some kinks starting to creep in. So uh, we, we probably help each other in that respect. Do you think you've worked at it though, Michael? Have you wanted to retain an Aussie accent? Um, it's a good question. I Yeah, it's important to me. Uh, I, I still feel Australian, uh, even though I've now lived more than half of my life in the United States and I got dual citizenship when Australia permitted that. There were, was a long period when Australia did not allow dual citizenship, but my green card was coming up for renewal in 2016, I think, no, 2006. Mm. And uh, I had the option to to get the citizenship. And of course, I was eager to do that. I might as well have the best of both worlds. But uh, but deep down, I, I'm still an Aussie at heart and <laughs> uh, <laughs> have no fear. You had some uncertain times after parting company with the Stronach Group at Santa Anita. But at the end of 2019, you were honoured when Dr. Allred, owner of the Los Alamitos operation, invited you to take over from a man called Ed Burgart, who was retiring after four decades as resident race caller there. Yes, and Ed is revered as quarter horse racing's premier race caller. And uh, so big shoes to fill for sure. It's it's a year-round job. They race nighttime quarter horse racing on the weekends. Uh, there's some weeks of afternoon thoroughbred racing interspersed between the Santa Anita and the Del Mar seasons. And at those times, I'm actually on double duty. I'm calling daytime thoroughbreds and nighttime quarter horse racing. Uh, so I'm enjoying the routine. I'm loving keeping busy because, uh, as you alluded to, John, um, work and my career has been somewhat sporadic over many years. Quarter horse racing must keep a caller pretty sharp, I imagine, something akin to calling the dogs. Yeah, matter of fact, it's quite possible that calling some greyhound racing back in Australia um, probably stood me in good stead for the quarter horse assignment here. I had called some quarter horse racing, which is very popular across America, at a track in Texas some years ago. Mm. But uh, this is a full-time quarter horse job, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. They're, uh, 
exhilarating athletes and it's extremely challenging when it comes to blanket finishes with the horses stretched across the track. Mm. Los Alamitos, I read, offers some pretty attractive prize money for some of the quarter horse races. Yes, indeed. They have uh, several races of a million dollars. They have a $2 million race. They also host a season-ending race in December called the Champion of Champions, which is pretty much the the measuring stick for, uh, for for the nation's top quarter horses. And its winner's list is a who's who of the sport's champion performers. So uh, there's pressure on uh, to, to get the calls right. And uh, it's, it's a new, fresh challenge. And most importantly, after what happened to me uh, with the Stronic Group a couple of years ago, is working for someone who appreciates and respects me and genuinely wants me. And I feel all of that here at Los Alamitos, courtesy of Dr. Allred. It's a great atmosphere, wonderful group of people to work with, and there's no corporate layers above the people here at the track. It's its, its own singular entity, which is very refreshing. Turning back the clock, Michael, to 1990, when you and I arrived at Hollywood Park at the invitation of a dynamic lady called Marge Everett, who ran the place with an iron fist in fact, on race day, Marge would patrol the place from one end to the other, and to say she had a presence is an understatement. She would often, as she walked around Hollywood Park, be consuming a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> yes, she was uh, a very unique figure, somewhat polarising in the California horse racing industry in a broader standpoint, uh, but she is responsible for inviting you. And, and the, the reason I should mention is that there's a South African race caller, Trevor Denman, who had revolutionized race calling in America across the 1980s, working at the other tracks in Southern California, Santa Anita and Del Mar. But Marge was, as I said, somewhat of a polarizing, controversial figure. And the relationship between those other tracks and Hollywood Park was not good at the time mm. to where Marge was unable to hire Denman. She would have, but the other tracks wouldn't release him. And that's that's really what launched her on this international search, which led to you and then by osmosis to me. Mm. Michael, I'll never forget the phone call I received from Marge Everett. It was a Saturday morning. It was Golden Slipper Day, in fact, 1990. Uh, I answered the phone rather impatiently because I wanted to get on my way to Rose Hill and I heard this rather broad American accent on the other end of the line offering me a job at Hollywood Park. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, for a few moments I couldn't determine whether or not it was a genuine call I simply said, Mrs Everett, can we talk again, please, on Sunday morning? I've got a big commitment uh, to attend. I've got to get on my way to the races in Sydney. Uh, can we talk in 24 hours? And that's how it all happened. Now, Mike, thankfully, you made a big impression on American race fans and you got the job at Hollywood Park. Now, not long after you, lucky devil, you got to call the clash between the reigning horse of the year, Sunday Silence, and the horse who would be horse of the year, criminal type, in the Hollywood Gold Cup. Criminal type beat him on that occasion, but I think Sunday Silence came out of the race with an, with an injury. 
Yes, uh, this was quite the cauldron for a 24-year-old to be thrown into uh, so soon after assuming the full-time role, this million-dollar race, the track's signature event. And the pair made runs together from a long way out. They staged a thrilling battle the length of the straight. In those early days, John, there was a management directive to stay out of close finishes. Mm. But I had been able to convince Marge Everett that I needed to be free to exercise my judgment. Mm. I correctly called criminal type winning that photo. And in mm. truth, the margin was closer to a head than a nose. But under the circumstances, mm. it was a huge sigh of relief to see his number flash up <laughs> as the winner. I'll bet it was. Now, I'll uh, tell you one other footnote to yeah? that race call. Mm. As they were fighting out their protracted battle, I used the phrase soul-stirring duel, which was a favourite line of Vince Curry's. Mm. It was a tribute to someone I did not know for long before he passed away. But Vince gave me valuable early encouragement. In fact, he was the first person to listen to and critique my practice calls. Mm. I've used that line, soul-stirring deal, only twice. It was 26 years later before I encountered another momentous occasion worthy of Vince's phrase. Mm. And what race was that? That was at the Breeders' Cup in my first year at Santa Anita in 2016, mm. in the filly and mare dirt race, mm. when the top younger filly, uh, Songbird, undefeated in 11 starts, had a battle the length of the stretch with the champion older mare, Beholder, who'd been a wonderful horse over several seasons. Mm. And that was a closer finish than the Hollywood Gold Cup. It mm. was actually a finish I stayed out of. It was a very close nose that mm. went to Beholder. But uh, I used that line again, soul-stirring deal. I just found it tumbling out of my mouth, and mm. I, uh, I, I think I'll retire it now. Now, early in 1991, you landed a guest gig that would have triggered goosebumps in any Australian racing man. Thoroughbred racing had been introduced after many years at the Agua Caliente racetrack in Mexico, and this was the opening day, 59 years after Farlap had won his only race outside of Australia. Mike, on the day when you walked onto that place, could you feel the presence of Farlap? Believe it or not, there actually was a buffet at the track carrying Farlap's name. Mm. And yes, it was very much in my mind that uh, here I was at the track graced by Farlap in what was his first and tragically only race on this continent. At mm. the time, it was the richest race in North America. Agua Caliente has a fascinating history, John, mm. uh, keeping in mind that in California, racetracks were not legalized until the mid-1930s, plus mm. the infamous Prohibition era spanned the 1920s and early 30s. Mm. And all of this added up to Agua Caliente just over the border in Tijuana, becoming a magnet for Hollywood celebrities and regular horse racing fans alike. Mm. And they staged this race, which attracted Farlap. And uh, when they wanted to resurrect horse racing in the early 90s, they invited me to come down and share the duties across their opening weekend with the resident Spanish-speaking race caller. Mm. We alternated. He'd do a race in Spanish and I'd do a race in English. It was a wonderful experience. Mm. Oh, my word. I'm envious. Now, back in Los Angeles, you were dealt a massive blow. Your great supporter, Marge Everett, had been deposed from her role as Hollywood Park Supremo and her successor 
preferred the work of the man you mentioned earlier, Trevor Denman. And Mike, sadly, that was the first of several kicks in the bum that were awaiting you in your adopted country. Yeah, her her successor in what you could call a honeymoon period with the other tracks in the LA, the greater LA area, was able to accomplish something that Marge never could, hire Trevor Denman. So it was a statement of unification more than anything else, Mm. under the pretext of my having visa difficulties, which was an issue lingering in the background, but Mm. it was being worked on and would have been overcome. Mm. But uh, the result was that having resigned my job in Australia over the phone after 4BC, which had just become 4TAB, had Mm. granted me extended leave to travel with with you, Mm. um, I almost had to return return home with my tail between my legs. Uh, Fortunately, one person high up in management at Hollywood Park who was retained after the changeover Mm. continued to work with me on the visa process. But Mm. I spent the first half of 1991 in a state of limbo, having no idea where I might end up. Mm. Well, you ended up at Bay Meadows in beautiful San Francisco and you quickly got yourself there. Now, it's a good thing you're not a bloke to close doors behind you, Mike, because a few months later, Trevor Denman took a quick break and with Bay Meadows' blessing, you returned to LA to fill in at Hollywood Park. Uh, Bay Meadows must have been in recess, were they? No, Bay Meadows was running at the time. It was an arrangement made with Hollywood Park before I was hired at Bay Meadows because this switch for for Trevor to come to Hollywood meant he was calling races year round. And it's a heavy schedule. At the time, the LA tracks were racing five days a week. And so he needed a holiday at some point. It was decided it would happen in the the autumn season of racing in uh, October, November in uh, at Hollywood Park. And that's that's how I ended up back in the Hollywood Park broadcast box briefly. Mm. Well, that little reconnection with Hollywood Park led you to an experience you'll never forget. You got to do a voiceover race call for a scene in an episode of Seinfeld. How did that play out? Yes, it was amazing. I was contacted by a producer of Seinfeld when I was back there at Hollywood Park for a few weeks, filling in for Denman. They had an upcoming episode that included a racing-related storyline whereby Kramer overhears a tip while riding the subway Mm. and bets on the horse, Mm. and they wanted me to provide the race call, which entailed going to the Burbank studio near Los Angeles. Mm. Even though Seinfeld is set in New York, it was largely filmed in L.A. Mm. Uh, I sat in the actual subway carriage that they'd built while filling out paperwork, Mm. then performed the race call standing on the set of the betting shop where Kramer watches the race. Mm. I was hanging out afterwards, John, just watching some more of the production process. When they paged me to please return to the set, they wanted me to redo the race call and make it more dramatic, more of a late move by the horse, which was named Papanik, incidentally. Mm. Um, Apparently, my first take had the horse gaining ground too early and gradually, and the producers wanted a quicker transformation from dismay Mm. to euphoria. Mm. As Ken Howard would have said, they wanted him to come home a hundred miles an hour. (laughs) You know, because Seinfeld is so popular even decades later and in so many syndicated reruns, it is amazing how often someone says to me, either in America or Australia, hey, I just saw your Seinfeld episode, Mm. which, by the way, is titled The Subway. 
Um, it's it's really a, a very popular scene, particularly in racing circles. There was actually a widely distributed uh, piece on social media mm. where somebody creatively dubbed one of Darren Flindell's Chautauqua calls. I think it might have been the TJ Smith mm. over the video of Kramer urging his horse home. Mm. And, and Seinfeld fans will find this difficult to believe, but I saw Kramer rehearse his scene cheering home the horse, mm. and he actually toned it down for the take that was used. Goodness me. Yeah. Well, 1992, you also picked up the race calling duties at Golden Gate Fields in San Francisco. So you, you were handling two tracks in their respective seasons. But 1994, it was another kick in the Kyber. You're on a European holiday when you learn the boss at Bay Meadows had been replaced, and so had you. Loyalty, Michael, was a rare commodity in racing administration in the USA at the time? For sure. Um, I was in Europe. I was in London with a mate from high school who was to travel back home through America. He wanted to see me call a race at Bay Meadows, and he was also interested in seeing an American football match. And we realised that the San Francisco 49ers were playing on the same weekend that Bay Meadows opened and uh, that the team would be in town. So from a red phone booth in London, mm. I called a friend at Bay Meadows who was a big football fan, told him I had a mate who was going to attend the races on the Saturday and wanted to see the 49ers on the Sunday while yeah. I was working, mm. and would he be so kind as to try to purchase a ticket? Well, my friend from the track rather awkwardly said, I think I'd better try and get you two tickets to the football. And that's how I found out Goodness I'd lost me. my job at Bay Meadows just a couple of weeks before they were opening. Mm, horrendous. You yeah, continued uh, on uh, at Michael at Golden Gate until 1995 when an exciting offer came out of the blue. Many millions of dollars had been invested in a brand new racetrack operation called Ratama Park in San Antonio, Texas home of the Alamo. It opened with a bang, but it hadn't even completed its first season when the owners filed for bankruptcy. M. Rona was again down for the compulsory eight count. Did the thought of accepting the number four position back at 4TAB in Brisbane cross your mind? <laughs> yes, there was certainly a crisis of identity and uh, I was left feeling bereft of opportunity and confidence after the latest setback in Texas. You know, after I lost Bay Meadows, I I still had Golden Gate Fields, but mm. felt like there was no real future for me in California, having lost jobs in LA and San Francisco. So I decided to look elsewhere. There was this new circuit of racing getting off the ground in Texas. The one in San Antonio was the first to open. And so I left Golden Gate, went to Texas, as you just said, they pulled the pin through bankruptcy filing just before the start mm. of the end of the inaugural season, and that was the third job I'd lost in five years. Goodness me. Michael, how did you get to Arlington Park in Chicago in 96-97? John, I was holidaying back in Australia in early 1996, feeling completely lost and not knowing where my future lay. When I was contacted by Arlington, uh, they were looking to replace their race caller. And as you know, it's one of the most famous tracks in America, which hosted the world's first million-dollar horse race. I remember watching the telecast 
in my mum's living room of the Arlington Million mm. in 1981. Mm. So it was amazing to get the chance to work at this beautiful track. The facility burnt to the ground later in the 1980s mm. and was rebuilt, no expense spared. It was lavish, palatial. It was the Taj Mahal of racing facilities. Mm. Uh, the Queen's silks were on display at the track. They they got horses from Europe to come to their big races and they had rebranded the place Arlington International Racecourse after it was originally known as Arlington Park. And I, I mm. think they felt that that made me a good fit for their international theme. Mm. Well, during that time, Arlington, uh, you got to call a race that may well remain your all-time favourite. The race was called the Arlington Citation Challenge over the equivalent of nine furlongs and the Great Cigar drew a massive crowd as he attempted to equal the all-time record of 16 straight wins established by Citation 46 years earlier. What are your recollections of the race? I'll tell you that a reporter asked me how I felt about calling such a landmark occasion in uh, the days leading up to it, and I casually replied, oh, it's nothing really. I called Picnic in the Park's 17th straight win at Wondi. (laughs) (laughs) And he quoted you. I quickly shifted tack, though, and assured him that I was appropriately nervous. In fact, (laughs) I was so nervous in the days leading up to that race that I called you, seeking any advice you might have to impart. I recall that, I remember you saying, yeah, you told me, to remember he's not the only horse in the field, that all the other horses have owners and people who've bet on them and to not get carried away too early, to just take it easy while letting the race develop as it does. Uh, it was televised live nationwide on one of mm. the major American networks, CBS, and I worked with the window open at Arlington, which served to amplify that massive crowd that was on hand. Mm. Well, Cigar won almost $10 million in winning 19 of his 33 starts. He won every honour available and he went to the stud amidst much fanfare. Sadly, he was infertile and he finished up a major attraction at the Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington and that's where he died. Yes, I got to visit the Kentucky Horse Park too late. I was there a few years ago, but but he had passed away. Unfortunately, I never did get to meet Cigar there. But uh, the race, as you say, certainly stands uh, very prominently in my memory, my list of of favourite moments. I I threw in one pun just before the home turn, saying that Jerry Bailey set Cigar alight. I couldn't help myself. (laughs) But I wanted a a special (laughs) phrase to commemorate the achievement, should he win. And I drew inspiration from Bill Collins' famous Cox Plate call when he used that wonderful line, bone crusher races into equine immortality. Mm. I tweaked that and nearing the finish, I said, Cigar assumes the crown of immortality. So mm. if the Hollywood Gold Cup was a tribute to Vince Curry, I guess you could say the Arlington Citation Challenge was a tip of the hat to Bill Collins. And, and the race took on more significance when Cigar was beaten at his next start. Mm. So I called the 16th and final win in the sequence. Mm. He did win another one after that. And then I think he raced only twice more. Uh, Might have run second in one and third in the other. And then he was retired to the stud where they found out he was infertile. But he was a a mighty horse of the modern era. Now, yes, in and 19- in that streak mm. of 16 wins, John, it was the first running of the Dubai World Cup. He, he won internationally and at many tracks across America. Wonderful. In 1999, life turned the full circle for you 
when you landed back at Hollywood Park. Trevor Denman had suddenly resigned. The caller who replaced him was moving on to Churchill Downs. So back to where it all started. And some exciting things happened in that period, Mike. One of them was the new riding record set by the great jockey Lafitte Pinkeye Jr., who broke Willie Shoemaker's long-standing record. It was almost 9,000 wins from memory. Yeah, and John, you got to call Pinkeye during your stint in 1990. Mm. Yes, I recall watching him go around. He was a legend then. Yeah, and there was enormous anticipation as Pinkeye was on the cusp of this record. But unlike a major race that might make you nervous, but at least you know what day and time it'll take place, this became a protracted ordeal as no one knew which race or even which day would be the charm. Victorian racing recently experienced something akin when Jamie Carr became the first person to ride 100 winners in a season. But Pinkeye was gunning for a national all-time record. The media attention was intense. And I was asked by management to give Pinkeye some extra mentions in running. So it was a big relief when it finally happened. I'm sure it was an even bigger relief for Lafitte. Mm, Absolutely. He finished up with well over 9,500 wins. He's still third on the list years after retirement. The little bloke from Panama, Mike, was held in the highest regard by all who knew him. For sure. And a very classy individual too. I've uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him uh, and talking with him on numerous occasions. And he is a high quality person. And uh, he had such incredible strength. His hand riding of a horse was legendary. He could just about lift them over the line. We'll take a break, Mike, uh, on our special podcast with Michael Rona, who's in the broadcast box at Los Alamitos in Orange County in California. Back after this. The $1.3 million Kosciuszko is the world's richest race for country-trained horses, and the field is determined by those who draw winning tickets in the Kosciuszko sweepstakes. $5 tickets are now available through the Tab app or your local TAB outlet. 14 winning ticket holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Holders of those winning tickets will have the opportunity to select the horse they'd like to run in their entry, and if successful, will then negotiate the terms of a prize money split with the owners of that horse. A $5 ticket could make it possible for you or your syndicate of friends to share in the ownership of a runner in a race which in just three runnings has achieved a high profile. Grafton-trained Bell Flyer gave his slot holders a big thrill when he won the first Kosciuszko in 2018. In 2019, it was Handle the Truth, and last year, It's Me from Scone. It's an exciting opportunity for bush horses to take centre stage on one of the biggest race days in the world. It gives punters and racing fans the opportunity to share in the ownership of a horse running in a $1.3 million race. Remember, the 14 winning slot holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Back online is Michael Rona. You called a couple of winners with Australasian connections at Hollywood Park. Uh, One of them was a dual Group 1 winner in Australia, a horse called Accomplice, who won a stakes race Uh, in the USA, and Happy and You Know It, a New Zealand mare who'd also won a Group 1 in New Zealand before going over there. Uh, That would make you feel a little closer to home. 
Oh, it sure did. I got such a buzz out of both of those wins. Accomplice was trained by John Hawkes, and what breeding he had. He was by Canny Lad from With Me. He, mm. he won a Galaxy and a Doombin 10,000 in 1997. Uh, his ownership in the U.S., uh, was uh, chiefly comprised of brothers with the surname Cook, who mm. were friends of mine. And so I delighted in calling Accomplice winning a stakes race at Hollywood Park by using the line, Accomplice has got him cooked. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. You... I actually got to visit the horse several times in his retirement uh, at a farm, a property outside of Sacramento. Mm. He, uh, he passed away about three years ago, but uh, he... Uh, He's certainly a horse that gave me a thrill here. You were kind enough to send me a photo of your meeting with Accomplice and I'll be posting that right alongside the podcast heading on the website. Now, when you were not able to negotiate a suitable contract with Hollywood Park, you accepted an offer from Lone Star Park in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and back to Texas you go. Now, you were about to marry your first wife, Julie, whose acting career was taking her to New York frequently and you wanted to get a little closer to the eastern side of the country. You spent five years at Lone Star Park and during its off-season, you took on another role at Fairgrounds in New Orleans. You covered three seasons there. But history repeats itself. Both tracks were taken over by new management and you were terminated at both. You must have been getting a, a, an inferiority complex by this stage. It was exasperating. I did have a really enjoyable five-year stint at Lone Star Park. Um, Hollywood Park, the second time round in 99, lasted as long as my first stint there, just the one year. But this time I did leave of my own volition. The track had been sold, and as you said, I was planning to marry, and more than ever, I felt the need for some sense of security, mm. and Hollywood's management was not responding promptly in some discussions. Um, in the meantime, Lone Star Park had made me an excellent offer, and uh, Julie had Broadway aspirations, the potential to be bi-coastal, so we thought there was some logic to being located centrally in the US. It was a questionable move from a track of Hollywood Park's prestige, especially after the San Antonio track had imploded, although by then Rotama Park had reopened. Mm. But Lone Star had an outstanding management team in place. They were already proving successful after opening a few years earlier. So to the surprise of many, uh, if not all, including me, I had left Hollywood Park to return to Texas and was a really enjoyable period, but very busy travel-wise, John, because apart from the back and forth between Texas and Louisiana for the track in New Orleans, mm. Julie was on a one-year national tour of the musical Cats, mm. and then across three years after that tour, I helped move her in and out of five apartment sublets in Manhattan. So mm. there were many trips of, of visitation on weekends every few weeks and uh, plenty of ground was covered by both. Sadly, Mike, the ravages of distance eventually had a detrimental effect on your marriage and another chapter closed in your life in 2007. Now, you were greatly cheered by an opportunity to fill in for Tom Durkin on a large radio network to call the 2000 Preakness Stakes. Fusaichi Pegasus was all the rage 
after his Kentucky Derby win, but he met his match at Pimlico by a horse who hadn't even run in the Derby. Yes, uh, the race went to Red Bullet in a big upset. Fusaichi Pegasus was an odds-on favourite. This was a, an opportunity that came out of the blue, as so many of my opportunities seem to have done. Uh, Tom Durkin, at the time, was calling the Triple Crown races on a national radio network, needed to skip the Preakness. I still don't actually know the reason for that, but I was contacted to come in and call the race, filling in for Tom. Someone else was doing it on the... the uh, national television network at the time, Dave Johnson on ABC. But I got to call one Triple Crown race, and uh, that was another wonderful one-off experience for me. Because you've crammed 50 years of activity into 30, I'm going to abbreviate the next <laughs> part of, uh, of our interview. 2005, you went back to Golden Gate Fields for a while, and then the following year you were rehired by Bay Meadows so once again, you had the San Francisco scene tied up. 2008, Bay Meadows closed its doors, but you stayed on for quite some time at Golden Gate. Your spirits were lifted in 2012 when you got the opportunity to call South America's biggest race, the Grand Premio Carlos Pellegrini at San Isidro track in Buenos Aires. Call it for whom? For a network called HRTV, which uh, I guess you could say was an equivalent of Sky Racing, they were experimenting with doing some telecasts of South American feature horse races. And they liked the idea of taking an English-speaking race caller with them. And uh, I got the chance to travel to Argentina all that way to call one race, which involved a 22-horse field. Mm. Uh, it was a very large race course. Uh, I had uh, pretty uh, pretty shaky uh, accommodations, but got through it, and uh, it became another continent, another country in which I've called a race. 2015, the most bittersweet experience of your life unfolded. Trevor Denman suddenly resigned at Santa Anita. You were asked to join three other callers in a season-long audition exercise. At the end of that period, you got the job at one of the world's most iconic racetracks. Now, this is where, Mike, you attracted the attention of your first real stalker, a person who turned out to be <laughs> a Drever Denman fan, and he thought you'd pinch Denman's job. It all got pretty tense. Yes. Soon after I started the full-time position, a threat was made against my life by a deranged devotee of Denman's mm -hmm. who accused me of stealing his job, even though Trevor announced his retirement from the position after 33 years. Mm -hmm. John, I had to be given a security escort between my car and the broadcast box. Mm -hmm. At one point, there was a guard stationed outside the box it was unsettling, to put it mildly. Two wonderful things happened to you in 2016. You got to call the famous two-day Breeders' Cup extravaganza held that year at Santa Anita, and you married the girl you'd known since the Golden Gate days, the girl whose disposition was as sunny as California itself. And you and Cathy <laughs> have had a wonderful time together. 
yes, we married in July 2016, and it uh, it has been a blessing. She's uh, very strong and uh, very supportive, and uh, we uh, it, and it's a lot simpler and more streamlined just from a logistical and geographical standpoint. Mm. Uh, she actually works at Los Alamitos in the what they call the paramutual department, mm. uh, the, the equivalent of the tote department at Australian tracks. Yeah. So it's a lot uh, easier for her to shift uh, with the, the changing tides of mm. my career. At the end of 2018, that legendary loyalty we've been talking about in the upper echelons of American racing reared its ugly head again. You just calmly went along to see the CEO about the terms of the new contract you were expecting to sign when the sledgehammer dropped one more time. Yeah, I had an appointment in November of 2018 at the end of my third year at Santa Anita to discuss my contract renewal. Uh, this gentleman told me I'm an excellent race caller, and that is a quote, but that he was making a change and had already hired my replacement. He subsequently announced that he wanted his new race caller to be more interactive with the public, more of a face and not just a voice. But Johnny never expressed that to me or gave me the chance to adapt, which I gladly would have done. The chief executive effectively changed the job description without informing me. Apparently, this gentleman was oblivious to the unprecedented audition process that was staged over three months, less than three years earlier. Mm. Apparently, he was oblivious to Santa Anita's proud history of having used only a handful of race callers in its three quarters of a century existence. Mm. Apparently, he was tone deaf because as hard as I am on myself as my own biggest critic, I know how positive the feedback had been from the press to the mm. regular fans and the high stakes punters. And he most certainly was malleable because he was easily swayed by a singular entity mm. allowed to wield too much influence. Mm. And um, we should mention that that CEO is no longer with the company. No, no, he's not. John, of all the kicks in the gut that I've had, this was the hardest to stomach. Mm. I know life's not fair, but this was unfair and egregiously wrong. It, it threatened my sanity and mm. that of my wife's. Yep. And for the umpteenth time, I was left staring at a blank page. Yep. I know it knocked you about, Michael. We spoke many times uh, during that period and uh, you certainly need some needed some cheering up, which came along soon after. Now, speaking about cheering you up after the unpleasant subject we've been discussing, uh, let's talk about expressions and cliches that are used by Australian commentators that have a completely different meaning over there. And you've dropped a few clangers in total innocence. <laughs> yeah, indeed, that is the case. Uh, there are some straight-laced expressions with different meanings, such as uh, a race meeting in Australia is a singular day of racing, whereas here a, a meeting is an entire season, so you can't get on the PA and welcome people to today's meeting. Mm. Uh, races, as soon as they're finished in Australia, are official, then goes to correct weight, whereas here it's unofficial, and then official is the equivalent of correct weight. So you've got to be careful with important things like that. Uh, but uh, on a lighter note, there are many different meanings 
gosh, uh, if a horse is hanging in Australia, he's lugging. Uh, in the US, hanging means that the horse is not finishing the race off strongly. He's not attacking the line. Um, a real head scratcher for me is ridden out, which in Australia means fully extended, but in America means the opposite. It means winning well in hand or unextended, which I just find nonsensical, so I never mm. use the term. Mm. Uh, there are several uh, other phrases with some humorously confusing differences. I can't say a horse is being nursed because in America that means only breastfed. Uh, <laughs> if, a horse, if a horse knocked up in Australia, yeah. it weakened. Yeah. In America, knocked up, the only meaning is being pregnant. <laughs> uh, the, the general manager of one track I worked at was quick to inquire what the hell donkey licking means. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I definitely can't say that a horse looked a bit stiff because the only connotation in America is that the jockey wasn't trying. Mm. But probably the most sensational example of all was at Hollywood Park way back in 1990 mm. when the favourite had been shaded turning for home but had yet to be asked for his best effort leading me to comment that the jockey appeared to have something up his sleeve. Mm. Well, soon after the race, I received a sharp knock on the door from a steward demanding to know what I'd spotted. <laughs> he thought I'd seen a concealed device. <laughs> he thought uh, you were assuming a jockey uh, had access to a battery. <laughs> Precisely. Good so uh, that's, that's another expression I've shelved. There's a long list of... Uh, of, of phrases and cliches that uh, that just haven't been able to make the cut over here. <laughs> Mike, 2019, after your termination at Santa Anita, should have been the most miserable year of your life. But so many things happened, you didn't even have time to think about Santa Anita. Now, let me quickly summarise the places at which you called horse racing in the year of 2019. February, you called a big meeting in Qatar, of all places. April, May, three weeks at a new track in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, in May, you did a short season at a new track called Arizona Downs. July, August, you did your 10th season at a little track called Santa Rosa, who race in the summer when Golden Gate takes a little break. September, you covered a five-day meeting at an all-turf fixture at Franklin on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. October, November, you followed the Oregon Trail to a place called Grants Pass, where you called the races for several weeks. 2019, my boy, must have gone like a flash. You know, that blank page I referred to earlier at the end of 2018, John, miraculously filled throughout 2019. It became the most varied year of my life, and... I just remained open to wherever the current swept me. Not counting a trip to Australia, I travelled about 35,000 work-related miles that year. Goodness me. Yeah, but... And then it culminated in getting the Los Alamitos job in December of 2019, and I've been settled into uh, a welcome routine ever since. Happily, you get to Australia from time to time, and we usually catch up. I recall a day out we had, uh, you were working at Ratama Park at the time. You'd taken a break, you'd come home to Australia. Uh, there was, you told me there was a horse racing at Ratama Park by the name of Wiseman's Ferry. Now, you knew there was a place 
uh, of the same name north of Sydney, and you insisted on having a look at it. So off we went to Wiseman's Ferry on the Hawkesbury, and I think we had lunch at the famous Wiseman's Ferry pub. Yes, yes. Uh, any name associated with Australia that uh, I encounter or any breeding in a horse, uh, I immediately uh, get excited and I couldn't wait to tell you about uh, quite a decent horse by that name, mm. uh, uh, given the connection to a place not all that far from where you were living at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I showed you a, a little statue uh, a little bronze cast of a gentleman called Solomon Wiseman, who'd been one of the very early settlers uh, in that area, right on the Hawkesbury. The place was named after him, and Wiseman's Ferry uh, was the thoroughbred horse racing in Texas that fired your imagination. Well, Mike, we must take Kathy to the Wiseman's Ferry pub next time you're over. <laughs> I, uh, I'm feeling a bit isolated from Australia at the moment, uh, of course, because of the pandemic, John, but I certainly hope that there is an opportunity into the new year for us to visit again and, uh, and clink a glass of Chardonnay. You got me in one. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Sunday morning, our time, Saturday evening, early Saturday evening, your time, and you're getting ready to call a big card of quarter horse racing at Los Alamitos. You've come a long way, my boy. In 31 years, you've handled setbacks and disappointments with great dignity, and you've handled the job, the craft of race calling, with great expertise. I'm proud of you. Well, thank you so much, John. That means a lot to me. I'll never forget, as I finished my first race call at Hollywood Park, feeling you slapping me on the back as I was calling the last few horses past the finish line. Mm. And uh, it's been quite a journey. And uh, if nothing else, I, I hope I get points when it's all said and done for perseverance. <laughs> you get the gold star for perseverance. Mike, thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound and good calling tonight at Los Alamitos. It came as no surprise when English Managing Director Mark Webster announced that South Australian GTRA would fill the company's slot in the Everest at Randwick on October the 16th. GTRA ran in the English slot last year, coming from well back to finish a strong third to classic legend. The horse stayed in Sydney and two weeks later won the $1 million Yes, Yes, Yes stakes at Rosehill Gardens. Not long after, he presented with a knee problem which required surgery for the removal of a bone chip and then a long spell. On resuming, GTRA ran third in the Group 1 Goodwood Handicap and was then taken to Brisbane where he was unplaced in the Kingsford Smith Cup, only 2.8 lengths from the winner after a wide run and a pretty hefty check in the straight. Fittingly, he was purchased by trainer Gordon Richards at the 2017 English Premier Sale for just $41,000. He's taken his large ownership syndicate on a fantastic journey with 10 wins and 12 placings for more than $3.2 million. Inglis and GTRA get together for the second time in the world's richest race on turf, the fifth running of the Tab Everest at Royal Randwick on October the 16th.